everyone. This is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. This episode is part of a series that I'm doing, breaking down different experiential and bottom-up therapeutic modalities and exploring how they apply to people with complex trauma. Today, I'm interviewing an amazing therapist named Adele Martel. And we will be talking about somatic experiencing, attachment and somatic-based EMDR, religious trauma, and more. It's going to be a great episode, but before I jump in, let me just share a few other announcements. I have been creating low-cost educational workshops, and I currently have one coming up and one available in recording form. The recording I have available is called Healing Modalities for the Painfully Self-Aware, where I talk all about what does and doesn't work for self-aware people with trauma in order to experience deep healing. I have a workshop coming up geared towards therapists who want to broaden their skills. It's called Intro to Experiential Therapy. That will be happening live on May 7th and will also be available in recording form. If you're interested, you can click on my link tree for instructions on how to register for a workshop or purchase a workshop. And my second announcement is that my practice is currently hiring. It's called Strong Root Psychotherapy, and we are currently hiring therapists in all states for a telehealth position. We are specifically looking for therapists that are really passionate and excited about these kinds of bottom-up experiential therapeutic styles that I've been exploring in these episodes. So if you want to hear more, if you think we might be a good fit, feel free to reach out. The email address is hello at strongrootpsychotherapy.com, and I also have a link in my link tree to fill out an application. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so before I start interviewing Adele, I'm going to read these little blurbs that she sent me, just giving an overview of the two main modalities that she uses. First, I'm going to read about somatic attachment-based EMDR. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. It is a body-mind integrated eight-phase therapy that has been proven to be highly effective for those who have experienced trauma. Through the use of bilateral stimulation, memory reprocessing occurs to help clients refile memories correctly and decrease nervous system activation. Somatic attachment-based EMDR uses a series of safety resources or body-based exercises meant to support the client's affect and sense of connection. This attachment approach takes into consideration early attachment patterns and experiences, as well as the built-in trauma responses that then become patterns. In somatic attachment EMDR, blocks are approached as strengths as well as challenges. We reconsider blocks as overdeveloped skills so that we can safely work within the client's patterns rather than against them. And then here is the definition description of somatic experiencing. Somatic experiencing aims to resolve symptoms of stress, shock, and trauma that accumulate in our bodies. The somatic experiencing approach facilitates the completion of self-protective motor responses and the release of misdirected survival energy bound in the body. Somatic experiencing uses mindfulness, body awareness, breath awareness, and body-oriented tools to guide clients towards their inner and outer resources to stabilize any dysregulated symptomology. This is approached by gently guiding clients to develop increasing tolerance for difficult bodily sensations and suppressed emotions. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast, and I'm really excited about the interview with our guest today. Um, So the therapist that we're going to be speaking to is Adele Martel, and I'm going to read her bio to introduce her. Adele is a somatic-based psychotherapist, certified trauma professional, and spiritual integrationist. She is a sought-after speaker on topics of religious trauma, complex PTSD, 
intimacy development, mindfulness, and body-based healing. Adele is known for her warm and engaging person-centered approach. She is a brain science nerd and a whole person healing enthusiast. Thank you so much for being here, Adele. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be with you. Yeah. So I, I feel like we have so much stuff to cover today, but just to start off, can you just kind of further introduce yourself and just tell everyone a little bit about the modalities that you like to use and, and what you want to be sharing about today? Yeah, for sure. So um, we'll be going over today somatic experiencing, but also somatic attachment-based EMDR, which is a little bit unique and potentially a bit more appropriate for CPTSD. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about how I came into functioning in these modalities. So it starts really like oddly young for me. Um, my dad practiced transcendental meditation and mm. uh, being raised with that conceptual form of centering and grounding um, and self-awareness was really formative through my practice um, of just healing myself and um, being part of healing communities. And so when I became a therapist, I, I remember several years back, I called my friend who was a co-therapist and was like, hang on, there's a name for what I do. I just realized that it's called somatic <laughs> experiencing. She was like, yeah, that's what you, that's who you are as a therapist. You didn't know that. And I was like, no, <laughs> I had no idea. There's a name for it. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing it for decades. Like I didn't know. <laughs> Peter Levine got really popular and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. This looks familiar. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so I was really blessed pretty young to, even though I was raised within a specific religion, I was really um, blessed that I had parents who were very um, reverent of other traditions. And so part of our practice as a family was mindfulness. And um, when I went through my own trauma and multiple traumas, um, holistic healing was imperative to how I got through it and out of it and still stay centered and grounded. And so yoga was part of my practice. And then how I became more um, diverse as a practitioner and a clinician is to have those early on experiences, kind of like old school, like learning from your supervisors, learning from the other practitioners in the community. And so I worked with um, alongside someone who is an applied kinesiologist, which is like a non-invasive holistic care form that uses muscle testing and energetic biofeedback of, of oh, okay. the body system to heal mm -hmm. and then received um, and worked alongside a lymphatic drainage specialist and a spinal, spinal energetic specialist. And then when I did my in internships in Baltimore, um, I was actually part of a drumming circle in Baltimore jail. And so oh, wow. all of these unique things came together to kind of form how I conceptualized our own capacity to recover and move beyond the reoccurring experiences of trauma that people with CPTSD and PTSD have. Um, so that's then I, and then I decided I probably should get some sort of like certification in this other than just <laughs> being a licensed therapist. Um, and so what I did is I took a a week's long course with Dr. Jennifer Sweeten, and it was on the neuroscience of somatic and brain-based trauma treatments. And mm -hmm. that really solidified my understanding. I've always been like a nerd, brain nerd science, just can't make sense of what we do just because of what we think. I want to understand what the muscle, the biggest muscle in our body it's doing, Yes, <laughs> how it's communicating with the rest of our body and if it's communicating and when and how. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really formative and kind of solidified my psychotherapy practice. So that's how I got wow, here. So cool. So, so many interesting kind of diverse experiences coming together on your path. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah so why don't we, um, I mean, I feel like 
it's, there's always so many layers to these modalities. So there's so, so much that we can say about them, but if you were just going to give kind of like a a brief overview, um, to introduce people to the concepts of somatic experiencing and somatic and attachment based EMDR, where would you start? Sure. So I'll start with somatic experiencing because I think that kind of helps us understand how um, the somatic treatment modality intervenes with EMDR. So we'll kind of start there. So when we're looking at somatic experiencing, we're not asking why, we're asking how. And the Mm. therapist is um, putting themselves in a position where they can become a conduit of safely experiencing the how through co-regulation and neuroception. And so I can kind of explain what's happening with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so with neuroception, we have this unconscious awareness of a constant evaluation of our safety and potential risk. And this is happening at all times. And so when we're practicing somatic experiencing, um, the therapist is acting as the conduit of a safe experience, potentially recreating um, a new experience or a corrective experience for that client to do what then is called introception. And so introception is the capacity to feel one's present body through our emotions, sensations, mm. and various different body states. If you're, you're, I know you're familiar, but if your mm-hmm. audience is with polyvagal, and so those various different body states. Um, and so this is where we start to look at the difference between emotions and feelings. Um, and so really what we want to do in SMAC experiencing is allow the client to differentiate from their thoughts about their emotions and tap into a more primal experience of feeling those and noticing what is happening within their body and becoming aware of how to move through those states um, to find a more secure sense of connection with themselves, their body, but also their environment, the therapist and the others that they have relationship with. Mm. And so we really believe as somatic experiencing practitioners that you are designed to heal and your body was created with a primal energy to move through a stress state. So when you experience a threat, your cortisol raises, your adrenaline raises, and you become rather mono, like a monolith with mm-hmm. your vision, you're honing in and you want to react in a various state, whether it is flight or it is fight mm-hmm. or it is freeze. And often because we are primal mammals, we would prefer to have fight or flight, but if we can't, we have built into our body, the capacity to freeze. And if that energy gets stuck there and it doesn't get to fully move through those states, then we can even move into a collapse state where everything is frozen in time and just feels ugh, mm-hmm. <laughs> scary to do anything else. When we're doing somatic experiencing with a client, and I'll explain more of what that actually looks like a little bit on, we want to help create compassion for those states and also teach the client that they've done a damn good job being in that state. And had they not, they probably wouldn't be alive. They would feel not alive. And sometimes they don't. Um, And so being able to recognize that there's nothing wrong with them. It's not that they didn't overcome something well. It's that their energy was literally prevented and blocked from Mm. being able to move through that cycle. 
So moving through that cycle happens on an individual level, but it also happens on a communal level. And this is something, so if you're pulling out like 360 view and we're looking at somatic experiencing, not just in the therapy office, but we're looking at it from a cultural component, we want to be asking ourselves as practitioners, how is my client part of a cultural experience of communal healing? And Mm -hmm. are they? What is the intergenerational component for them of communal healing? And so if we're only addressing healing from the perspective of the neurobiological, we're really missing out on a whole person healing advantage. And so we have a societal responsibility as therapists to recognize that colonization has Mm -hmm. done a major harm to communal healing, whereas Previously, we had marginalized groups and people of color and indigenous communities that had built in mechanisms for somatic release. Mm. They had ceremony, they had dancing, they had song, they had prayer. And as colonization occurred, it essentially wiped out and eradicated and tourniqueted those functionalities of those communal healings. Mm. And so When a client is coming into your office, if you're only focusing on the individual element, we're kind of missing out on our responsibility to decolonize therapy from my personal view. And so one of the things I do is do a cultural assessment with my client. Is there a race component here? Is there a religion component here? Is there an indigenous community connection component here? All of their culture, whether it's something that is a lived experience or generationally lived experience, is going to play into how they move through those states, how they view healing, what it means to them. And so taking that assessment into consideration allows you as a practitioner to get out of the way and let something so much more powerful than yourself be the point of connection for their healing. Um, Mm. You don't have to be the answer. Yeah. (laughs) actually point them to maybe elements of your community or in the community that are stronger opportunities for somatic expression than what you can do in your office alone. And what happens in your office then becomes a partnership Mm. with what they're connecting with outside of there to really give that whole person healing. Um, Oh my gosh. Yes. So much. Thank you so much. I feel I was taking notes while you were speaking and I feel like you already touched on like six things there that are so, so important. So just a few things I want to, I want to point out, you know, one is I, I really appreciate calling to attention, you know, the roots of these different healing practices and, um, you know, giving credit to the indigenous cultures and communities where these practices originated, because, you know, as, as much as people like Peter Levine or Gabor Mate or Bessel van der Kolk, or, you know, all these different kind of big names in the trauma healing world, you know, have, have done some work that, has been really influential. Um, I think we can definitely, we definitely need to acknowledge that a lot of the big names in the trauma healing are like, you know, white guys or or white people. Um, and, and we're not, we, we can't act like these modalities are things that white people invented in the last hundred years, right? Because they're absolutely not. Right. We we can take um, consideration and participation in the fact that they are neurobiological, right? We can do that part. But what we can't own is that they were quintessential and essential to healing far beyond we began the westernized studies of that medical model. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You said that so perfectly. And then, you know, I was also thinking about while you were speaking, the kind of individualism versus community based healing and how, um, within the Western kind of cult, you know, post-colonization culture, there's such an emphasis on this kind of, you know, hyper individualistic model of healing. That's very pathologizing, right. Where it's like the problem is within your brain and you need to be the one to heal it. And that's a you thing. Right. And there's not this component of community. And so it sounds like from from what you're saying, the somatic work, you know, as much as it is, you know, partially based on helping people be in their bodies and heal what's going on in their bodies, that it's like a lot more effective and and deep and meaningful if there's this community connection component as well. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And I think because when we think about body, we think of body like my body, my skin as a container, which is a big part of somatic experiencing container work. Mm -hmm. But when we think about body, there's also a body of people, right? And it's called Mm -hmm. a body for a reason. And I work a lot with people recovering from religious trauma. Mm -hmm. And kind of some of what you just talked about has become very apparent in my work as deconstruction has made it to the forefront and really has a platform right now. And so when I'm working with people who are healing from religious trauma, in particular, um, Christianity, one of the things that they come from is this biblical based knowledge of how important the body is, because there's this whole scripture that goes into like, whether you're the hands or you're the feet or, mm. so, you know, this has been preached to them about being part of a body. But the amazing and dreadfully sad thing that happens in deconstruction religious trauma work is that all of a sudden a person is extradited from the body that they were told they were an important part of and you better do your job mm. because you can't function without you doing your job because the body doesn't function without a hand or a foot or an eye. And so now all of a sudden they are not accepted in that body. They are alone in their body, but they were taught to not trust their body while they were part of that religious community. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So the somatic experiencing work that we have to do with that population is woo. But then on top of that, So many of these people, part of their deconstruction work is individual because they um, are afraid of speaking out loud and finding others that correspond with them for fear of being told you're only doing it because you were hurt. Mm. And so there's this, it's almost safer to process out and flush out these concepts, these um, indoctrinations alone um, so that they can kind of get their thoughts clear and reconnect with their body. But then they end up longing and missing for that communal expression yeah. again, whether it was through prayer or worship or how, or a group study, however. And so how do we help people with religious trauma and particularly evangelicals to not continue um, colonization in their practice, but also reconnect to communal healing without without appropriation. Oh my gosh. Yes. So many layers there. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've always felt that one of the main reasons that a lot of people are in, are vulnerable to these kind of like high control, um, cultish groups or really like fundamentalist groups is because of the lack of community that we all experience post-colonization and under capitalism. It's like, we're, we're so wired, you know, to find safety in that community. And because of the way that our, you know, our country is structured at this point, um, there's, there's such a lack of community and there's so much kind of isolation. And so I think it makes um, cults and high control religious groups really appealing, you know, cause it's like our nervous systems want that, that security. 
Absolutely. You're, you're spot on our nervous system. And that's so important. Our nervous system wants that security. And I think that right there is essential to understanding what somatic experiencing is. Mm -hmm. And so when we do pull in and we look at it in the, in the therapeutic context, in the therapy room, the therapist is working to not just educate the client on what's happening in the body and how to get in touch with that, but we're working on how to enlighten them, help them see insight within themselves that they are, they've always longed for this. So the Mm -hmm. thing that's unique about trauma survivors is that, and I know you've seen this in your practice too, right? Like sometimes you'll be working with a certain client who's struggling with depression and they don't, they don't really know they're depressed. And you have to have that moment where you're like, has it occurred to you that Mm -hmm. what you're experiencing is depression? Not so with trauma clients. Trauma clients come in and, and oftentimes they're like, they're talking about what they know they're supposed to be like, or what they know they're supposed to have, but didn't get. Mm. That is such a big piece of the work we're doing is reaffirming for them, affirming for them that that is true, that that longing is good and healthy. And that it's not that they're always going to have to stay in that place of being different or feeling on the outside of their body or feeling on the outside of community or productivity. That I mean, that's a lie from capitalism anyways, but that's another story. <laughs> So, so part of what we're doing is we're helping them get that embodiment sense and reaffirm that for them, that they're they're And we do this embodiment work without trying to get to a place where they're sitting within themselves um, with this intuitive feeling, this intuitive knowing, like an ability to notice familiarity of their sensations, and then starting to connect the dots of their experiences with those sensations. And so we're using visualization, we're using identifying pleasure, we're recognizing hyper and hypoarousal states, we're doing exercises that actively engage them. And I, I can give some examples if that's helpful of like what somatic experiencing looks like in the office. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. I think that would be great. But actually, before that, I I just wanted to ask one more question here. So um, earlier you mentioned, I think you said that we're we're helping clients experience their emotions instead of just being in the Uh thought, the thoughts about the emotions. And I wanted to highlight that because, you know, the, the point of this series is to help break down, like what is experiential therapy. And I think that's, that's it. Right. It's like, it's like, you're not just thinking about the emotions, thinking about the experience, you know, you're in the experience. So can you just speak a little bit more about that, that difference? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Okay. So when someone experiences trauma, what happens essentially um, is that they're stuck in the experience of the trauma and where it's stored in the brain is in the more primitive part, a reptilian part of the brain. And they often are reacting from that part of the brain as well with any new stimuli that's coming their way. And so it feels so dreadfully overwhelming because everything just feels like the traumatic experiences. And if you have CPTSD, you have a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And so it really becomes very hard to interpret new stimulus and everything feels like a threat. And so we build these narratives around those potential threats. And we do this to keep ourselves safe. And so when we do somatic experiencing, we're helping to slow that process down through something that we call self-awareness, titration, and pendulation. And I'll break that down. But instead of just 
I think I'm bad or I think I feel bad. I'm wanting the client to recognize how that feels. Mm -hmm. So I'm using a lot of open-ended questioning and this can often piss a client off. Can I swear? Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) This will often piss a client off at first. And that's why you have to go at their pace and use a lot of psychoeducation um, because it's a protective mechanism. And often when you use these open-ended questions, it can feel threatening. <laughs> like, right. You want me to go in my body. You want me to figure out how that feels. I don't have time for that. There could be something coming my way. I have to keep predicting. Right. I have to keep thinking and keep moving. I'm in danger if I slow down and feel this. Mm-hmm. And so this starts really, really small, the how. And so again, it's with open-ended questions, but a lot of times I'm not asking a client with CPTSD or PTSD um, to go within themselves first. I'm asking them to go within something that they find safe, Mm. whether that is me or that is something in the room they can identify, or that's an internal resource in These are helpful internal resources, like images of a caregiver figure that was safe, like maybe a grandparent other than the parents, Mm -hmm. or um, for a lot of clients with religious trauma, there's maybe a spiritual element so that they can still connect with what they call spirit. And that is something that's an internal resource. And so going within that, opposed to going within themselves first, how does it feel when you imagine connecting with that? This is beginning the introduction of the how opposed to the what and the why. Yes. Uh, Clients often want to go right to the, but why? Why? Right. right. (laughs) I think one of the, the, the best things you can do in smack experiencing with a client is to help them recognize that that information may not be useful right now. That actually may be exhausting for you right now. Um, You've spent so much time figuring out the why in order to predict the upcoming. If we could just stay in the now instead of the why, where is that? Um, What, if we were to get curious about this feeling, um, what does it tell us? What information is it giving us? Is it familiar or is it foreign? Have you ever felt this before? And that's one of my favorite questions to ask is getting into the, have you ever experienced this before? So for example, if I have a client who says, you know, I just couldn't stop crying and I don't, I I couldn't get anything done that day. I was stuck in my car, just crying, crying, crying. I don't know why that happened and say they've been in therapy for a little while. So you've done some work with them and they're going like, why, why can't I just be productive and get through the day? Why couldn't Mm -hmm. I stop myself from crying? Moving to the place of like, how did it feel to cry? It felt offensive. (laughs) Okay. Why did it feel offensive? Because I felt like it was taking too long. Okay. How did it feel like it was taking too long in in my chest? My chest just felt so pressured and tight. And in my hands, I wanted to like move my hands. I wanted to move my legs. I wanted it to be over. Okay. So when else have you, have you felt like that? Okay. When I wanted to get away. Okay. Well, how did it feel when you wanted to get away? It felt, it felt draining. It felt tired. Mm. Okay. Well, what did you ever feel that way before? Well, I used to feel that way when I couldn't give my dad the right answer. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and what did you, if you could have responded or felt any other way, how would you have wanted to feel in that moment in front of your dad? 
I would have wanted to have felt accepted. I would have wanted to have been allowed to cry. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So when you cry now, can you see her? Can you see them? Can you see he? How old are they? And so now you're taking them from less of the why and the what and into the how and into the nurturing yeah. and the reparenting. And so it becomes this right brain process where they're not jumping to move the file to the prefrontal cortex yet, mm-hmm. like he but they're staying still safely within their window of tolerance in that moment of visualization where they let themselves have that experience. And then all of a sudden you see a client be like, I did such a good job crying that day, didn't yeah, I? Yes, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Shifting the meaning, you know, uh, that's mm-hmm. attached to the emotional experience and the willingness to be in the emotional experience. And I, I feel like um, the imagery too. So the imagination and the visualization stuff, that yeah. is such a powerful thing. And in, in a lot of these different modalities and yes. another thing I'm trying to do with the, with this series is kind of connect the dots and highlight the overlaps between sure. different bottom-up modalities and just show how like even though they kind of have different protocols different approaches there's like these core themes that kind of keep showing up in all of them one of them is the non-pathologizing that you were talking about earlier you said I have it written down here you said you know your brain actually did such a good job right Mm. like this was not wrong this wasn't bad Mm. you didn't handle it poorly you know you actually your brain did a really good job and I think that message is like like such a central piece of, of all of these different trauma modalities. It's like you are adaptive, you are functional, your brain and body responded to its experiences the best way that it could. This isn't just like you having yeah. problems or being, you know, mentally ill or these kind of like pathologizing attitudes. Totally. And if you want to do it different now, how would you do it? Because we can do it. Let's do it together right now in this moment. How would you want to do it different? Because you did everything adaptively well. And so you didn't get to have the full expression or release of that primal energy. And you could now in this moment, right? So like, how would you do that? Right. So for the example I gave, maybe the client says, I I would have wanted to have been held. Okay. Can you grab that pillow next to you? Mm. I'm in my office chair. Can you hold that pillow? And then you see them all of a sudden, like nurturing a pillow, right? They're rocking back and forth. They're attuning with the pillow, which is their inner child, which is their younger self. They're moving. The tears are coming. They're rocking, which is a somatic Mm self-soothing, natural Mm -hmm. form of self-soothing. So there's this whole release that's taking place while they're moving the memory to a new experience. So it's not that that never happened. It's that your perception of it now is from a place of empowerment and autonomy opposed to them. Yes. And compassion instead of shame, like and connection instead of isolation. And yeah. So like shifting the context around these painful emotions so they can be kind of safely felt. And I love the, you know, the somatic piece of, um, kind of the, the gesturing. So noticing like, what a client's body is doing, you know, while they're talking about this. And in the example you're giving, it's like, oh, this tightness and this constriction Mm -hmm. that's happening in the chest. And then being able to actually encourage someone to embody like self-comfort and self-love somatically too. Because I feel like it's one thing to sit there and try to be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, 
I'm going to try to think my way into loving myself, but the somatic gesturing of like hugging yourself or holding yourself or having a client, yes. even just as simple as like put a hand on your heart and just like send your heart love while you're talking about this can yes. be so powerful. So one of the things you mentioned shame. So shame comes up a lot in CPTSD work with mm-hmm. somatic experiencing. And I ha- I have a little bit of a different approach. I think than I haven't, I haven't read this anywhere, but so, I mean, it's not, it's anecdotal. So yeah bear with me, but I've had good, good results. So one of the things is that, you know, clients, they feel shame for feeling shame. Yep. (laughs) And one of the things I really work on in somatic experiencing with my clients is permission to, um, close off. And I know that sounds weird, right? Like, no, we're trying to move them out of dorsal vagal (laughs) and it's true. We are, but sometimes before we can, we have to let go of striving. We have to let go of the self-punishment for feeling awful. Mm -hmm. And so what would it feel like to actually do all the things your body's telling you you need without punishing yourself for it? And so I I do this thing with my clients called cocooning. And sometimes in office, I have a blanket or a weighted blanket. And I will say, would you like to cocoon with this? And Mm -hmm. I will let them, I have yoga mats in my office. We put them down on the floor. I let them either do it on the couch in a chair standing on the floor. And I've, you know, will help if with permission to touch, help wrap them and, or let them on their own, which is more powerful to put themselves into a cocoon. And Mm -hmm we talk about what does it feel like to allow yourself to shut off from the world? Because I think we have so much shame for going into collapse, (laughs) but Mm. collapse is actually, it served you well because it's minimized the amount of stimulus and it's made your life more manageable. And we live in a society that says do more and smack experiencing is about being instead of doing. Mm -hmm. And so can we just be with collapse? Can we protect, get physical protection by putting the blanket on you? Would you like it tighter? Would you like it looser? Would you like it over your head? Would you like darkness, lightness, and really embodying that experience and then doing breath work while in that cocoon to like notice the variation of when you finally drop down into safety. Mm -hmm. (sighs) You see such release in clients in that moment because they're striving so hard to get out of that dorsal response that they then feel crappy about themselves. They think there's something wrong with me that I can't get out of this. And so giving permission to actually be in it and to love yourself in it. And then we talk about how can you take cocooning out of this office? And so I have clients that'll come back into session the following week and be like, you'll be so excited. I cocooned all weekend and I didn't get anything done. And it was amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Moment of like, okay, I'm not going to hate myself for this anymore. It's not that there's something wrong with me or I'm bad. And I was, I really needed rest when I was younger for my attachment figures, but I had to be on such alert helping manage their emotions or helping stay alive or helping get my needs met that I could never cocoon. I could never Mm. slow down enough. And so maybe my collapse is not just about being frozen out of fear, but it's about rest. Oh my gosh. I love that. No, I, I totally agree. I think I've seen this thing where sometimes when people learn about the different nervous system states, there can be this shame kind of layered on top of it where it's like, oh, it's bad to be in fight or flight. It's bad to be in freeze. It's bad to be dysregulated. Why can't I just be grounded? Why can't I just be regulated? Like all that stuff, you know, can start to come up. And so I feel like what you're describing is, yeah, the permission, the leaning into it, the meeting people where they are and the like de-shaming, you know, those different 
different spaces, like just allowing them to be. And then, you know, from that space of kind of allowance and compassion, then it's actually a lot easier to have more mobility and kind of shift and, you know, go in and out of different states. Cause that, that feeling of like, I'm doing something wrong by feeling the way that I feel is so immobilizing. Like it kind of locks you in. Absolutely. And so when we are working with somatic experiencing, we want to kind of go slowly to build the skills to do all of that, that you just described. And so, you know, if you're looking at it through Peter Levine's lens, he's got um, various phases, right? Like 12 phases that you move through. There's also other lenses of somatic experiencing out there that don't define it by those 12 phases, but in general, what everybody is doing um, or safely should be operating in with their clients is first building safety and what we call containment. Mm-hmm. And so finding your body boundaries, like helping a client first figure out like, what is my body? Do I even feel like I'm in my body? Do I, is my body scary for me? Um, and so you're using these open-ended questions to invite them to create a body boundary and to learn to experience containment within that body. Because when trauma happens to us, we churn off the natural signals of our body mm-hmm. and oftentimes either we get incredibly constricted boundaries or we get incredibly loose boundaries and we lose a sense of identity with our body. And so simple exercises like um, sometimes in my office, one of the things I'll do for containment is um, like taking, I have scarves in my office that I I use about in somatic attachment EMDR. And I'll Mm -hmm. talk about that then, but I'll take the scarves or I'll take yarn and ask them to make a boundary around their body. And Mm. how close is that? How far is that? How much does that feel safe to you to have? Is there anything we can do for you to take up more space and give yourself permission to take up more space? Mm. Would you, are we in a safe place in our therapeutic relationship for me to move closer? Or would you like me further away? Because you are, you're allowed to have consent here and autonomy over your body. So where I'm seated, even in this office matters out of respect for your containment and your boundary. And when we experience trauma, emotions feel like they are so bound with our memories that we often can't make sense of our current experience. And so almost all emotions become potentially dangerous. And we want to learn how to slow those those rush of emotions down with containment exercises. Mm-hmm. And so my, obviously there's the container somatic hug that Peter Levine talks about, but there's other things that you can do like very visual hands-on things. So I have um, rocks in my office, different stones, and I might have them label them with a sensation in their body. And perhaps even if they can associate an emotion and then moving that into different baskets and then moving those baskets in the office to different locations. How close would you like that emotion? How safe does that emotion feel? And so this experiential process really helps them regain a sense of autonomy and self over their trauma healing. Yes. Yeah. All of that. Um, so containment, it sounds like it's kind of maybe one of the, the earlier resources that, that is built up. And then you had mentioned pendulation and titration. Can you speak to those a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So these are core concepts and, and really like if, if you're doing smack experiencing work and this is not how titration and pendulation are not preparatory elements of your work, like run, 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 Mm -hmm. run. 
because it's not safe for your brain or your body. And so, um, and I only say that just because sometimes I hear clients come in with like horror stories of like a therapist saw a video and thought it was a good idea to try this with them, but didn't do Oof. any predatory pendulum. No. <laughs> like, um, I'm always just like cautionary tale. There should be pendulation and titration. Yes. So let me explain those. So Pendulation is something we do, and we do this a lot in, um, and here's the flow over to somatic attachment EMDR. We do this a lot in preparing for that work. Um, and it's the idea that we are going to be working with a client on staying within their window of tolerance. Window of tolerance, as you've talked about on your podcast before, is that optimal place in which we can receive information, make sense of it, and make decisions and and just be and act. Mm-hmm. And it's um, note the awareness of when we're in it and when we're out of it as well. And so pendulation is about first helping a client recognize what they're in their window of tolerance feels like a lot of clients with CPTSD don't know that one. So you've got to start there. You can't start with, well, it looks like you're in fight or flight. Like you don't want to be telling your client that (laughs) you you really want to help them first discover what it is they're in. Now you can give them um, affirmation of what they sense to help lead them to that, but just straight out telling them that is also just repeating the traumatic experience for them of, of loss of bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. So helping them discover um, what their baseline is and creating a baseline. So we get within that window of tolerance for what they can sensationally um, experience and, and have comfort, maybe even have discomfort, but not want to push it away as quickly. Mm -hmm. And so, and I say as quickly because it's okay to want to push it away. It's just not having the reflex where you automatically do it, but you yeah. can notice it and tolerate it. So we're, we're building that window of tolerance. And then with our somatic experiencing exercises that are associated with the bodily, the body's memories, the memories that are stored in the body, we're wanting to help a client move in and out of that window of tolerance safely. We do not want them to re-experience something or do a somatic experiencing exercise that brings them so far out of their window of tolerance that they can't move themselves back in. They leave the session and they're still dysregulated and highly activated in their nervous system. And so we might do things like visualization techniques where we're locating within the body a place that feels neutral, a place that, and and I don't say um, peaceful or calm. If the client wants to use that language, that's great. That's that's what they identify with. I'm usually using still, neutral, or safe. Yeah. Um, and so they're finding somewhere. And I'll say, like, even if it's the tip of your nose or your earlobe, like, can we identify somewhere that you can sense that doesn't have activation and feels neutral? And then can we identify somewhere in your body that feels highly activated? Um, and maybe what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about your experience with your mom growing up. Oh, yep. Okay. I just saw your shoulders raise. What are you? I'm curious how you experience your shoulders raising right then. Yeah, it's very, very tense. It's very, very heavy. Um, I feel my fists bind up and I actually feel my throat constrict. Mm. Great. Okay. So can we just stay with that for a moment? Wow. You're doing a great job. Okay. So stay with that. I'm curious if that feels safe still. Okay. Would you like to hold that a little longer? Mm. Okay. When you're ready and it feels right for you, move into that neutral place you identified, bringing your breath with you. Hmm. Okay. I'm observing that your breath is slowing down a little. 
Does that feel comfortable? Would you like to stay here longer? So it's a lot of asking them and then moving them back into the part of their body that was tense and then back into that neutral place. And what this demonstrates for our clients is that they have control because when you experience CPTSD and an event-based trauma, you feel a complete loss of control of your right. nervous system, of the world around you, of the relationships that were supposed to help you. Yeah. And so building that internal, that interception that they can they can manage their states of being. They won't always get it right. They will get knocked off their feet sometimes, but by and large, we can build a sense of window tolerance and baseline for them to move themselves in and out of is a very empowering experience. It's foundational. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a corrective experience kind of in its own way for that helplessness and that powerlessness of the complex trauma, right. You know, to you get to be the one kind of guiding your body in and out of these different states, deciding where your limits are, deciding what you consent to. So I can see a, you know, a reparative experience just in that process and in having the therapist, you know, really encourage that autonomy and that agency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then titration is, it's, it's just like a medical term for slowly, but surely working our way up. And so we want to build a tolerance for activation because the goal is to not remove activation altogether. We want our clients to understand that activation is bravery and has served them well, and it's bio (laughs) normative. And so we want it to be there. It is helpful. What we don't want to have is hyper arousal or complete stagnant hypo arousal. And so we want them to build a tolerance for activation so that they can notice when they need resources. And that's when another phase of somatic experiencing comes in, which is resourcing, which here's that kind of connect the dots to other bottom-up modalities, Mm -hmm. right? Resourcing in EMDR, we have resourcing in even IFS work, we have resourcing in, in, um, internal, um, resourcing, um, that you just, you just did the other day. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, the comprehensive resource model. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we resourcing is a huge piece of this. And so we kind of in smack experiencing, we kind of combine that in with grounding and centering. And Mm -hmm. so that's when we're looking towards connecting our resource, our natural resources of our body to our external resources. So one of the things that happens is Interestingly, in order to do somatic experiencing, you need proprioception and introception. And we hear in trauma work all the time about introception and neuroception, but we often don't talk about proprioception. Yes, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, this can be... Okay, like backstory. This we're here. You can hear my voice. Probably get excited about this. I was a gymnast, and so I learned very early on how to do proprioceptive exercises. And I honestly think it saved my life from my own complex PTSD. So just really? a little, okay, yeah, really. Um, and what it is is that you learn how to um, sense and experience your body in space and time. Hmm. Um, so when I had um. I have, I have recovered and still get triggered from complex PTSD, but I remember when I had one significant event and I remember talking to my therapist and the way I was describing my disassociation at the time of the event, she literally said to me, like, I've never heard anybody be able to explain their body, what was happening to their body while they were disassociated. And I can only say that it's because of proprioception work, which is, Learning how to sense what your body physically feels like 
in space and time and what that internally does to your body. So where I am in the here and now, what does it feel like? So for you right now in this moment where you are, can you notice what it feels like for your body to experience the external stimulus around you. Mm. So kind of the environment, like for me right now, I'm like, I'm sitting in the chair, like feel my weight in the chair, feel the carpet under my feet. Like, yes. Yeah. And if you were to leave that space, could you still feel that? Still feel the sensations that I'm feeling right now. I kind of take that with me. Take it with Mm, you. Okay. And this is important to somatic experiencing trauma healing work because you're creating all this safety, but when the client leaves here, right, they go back to their home where they still don't feel safe. What, what do you have? You know, you want to do. So part of resourcing is helping with proprioception work mm. is like orienting to space and time. Can you remember what it felt like when you last felt safe? Yeah. 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 That feel like in your body, what did your body feel like to be in that position of safety? Was it grounding? Was it anchoring? Was gravity heavy? Was your body swaying back and forth with the energetic movement of the earth? Was your heartbeat pounding so hard or so calm? And how did you feel in that position of space Mm. and time? These are all cues to safety, not just the internal information that we're looking to understand. Right, right. And yeah, so this also kind of reminds me of in the polyvagal theory, some of the things about like the safety anchors and the glimmers, right? Which is like these moments that connect us with a sense of, you know, this is what I feel like when I'm grounded, when I'm regulated. So could this apply to even hearing you talk, the first thing I thought of was swimming and being in water because I Mm. love, I love the feeling of being in water. That's always been like such a, such a resource for me and and such a kind of soothing, like sensory experience for me. And so I can almost imagine the feeling of like jumping into water or kind of like Mm. feeling like light in the water. And I, so would those kinds of resources kind of be part of this? Yes, exactly. And you just made me think of too, like, remember when you were a kid and you'd be in the tub and you'd like put your ears under the water and there would be that moment of like deafening quiet, Mm. like, I don't know if that's the politically correct term. I probably shouldn't have said that, but like if just that sense of encompassing safety of like everything went still for a moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. That like to be able to conjure that up. And so we do this also in like somatic attachment based EMDR when we're doing the preparation phase, besides just doing um, pendulation meditations and visualizations, we're doing safe place, which is pretty common in right. EMDR in general, but like creating that safe place. Um, the other thing we do is maybe resourcing light. Um, so mm-hmm. with my religious trauma clients, sometimes this one can be pretty triggering actually. So if they are in the place of their work where the idea of connecting with a holy being or a divine being feels very overwhelming, that's not a resource we're going to use because they've got a strong doctrinal association with light and um, holiness or light and divinity. And so you have to, again, you have to kind of bring in those cultural elements and awareness to that of what resources you're going to help your client navigate to find what's best for them. Yep. Yep. All of that makes sense. Okay, cool. So pendulation, titration, containment, and yeah, what, what else, you know, once, once we've kind of built up those resources, um, what else does the processing look like? Right. Absolutely. So we're doing tracking through all of this. So we're looking to kind of actively notice what images, thoughts, and emotions are arising with the um, somatic experiencing exercises that we're doing. So Mm -hmm. the body often doesn't feel safe 
um, for those who have trauma. And so one of the things we're doing is like doing exercises to find what we call like safe islands, um, whether it's within the body or it's with when external proprioceptive places. And then we're looking to build that tolerance. And then we're tracking to recognize maybe also what thoughts and beliefs are associated with this. And then I would say even taking this a step further, and this kind of jumps a bit more down with Levine's phases, but I like to kind of use some integration and flow here mm-hmm. is allowing the client to make meaning opposed to you doing it for them. And so um, when they start to touch into those sensations and they're tracking and saying, you know, every time we do this experience, I have this memory of that time that I really needed to be hugged and held, but instead I was alone. I had Mm -hmm. to, when I was sick, I was alone when my, my parents were too, um, you know, distracted by their own struggles and strife. And I was by myself and I really needed that comfort. And so I'm noticing that a lot of times I just feel like embarrassed and I feel, um, like I'm like, I'm just not worth it. Mm. And so they're, they're starting to tap into their belief system and this is coming out naturally. And I, I wouldn't stop a client from doing that. What I would do is maybe slow down with them. So they're not flooded and begin to just kind of help them track like, how old were you when that started happening? Where in your body, as cliche as that sounds, but like, where does this consistently show up for you? Is there any part of it that feels, um, and this is going to sound really strange, but sometimes I'll ask my client, like, is there any part of it you're proud of? Mm. Because sometimes what they don't realize is like, well, heck you got yourself through it. Oh my God. Mm. You, You went through all that by yourself and look who you are. Like, look where you are today. My goodness. Yeah. And so having that moment where you actually let the client reflect on their adaptation in a way that moves them from just feeling embarrassed or awkward or shamed into a different part of their body where they feel warmth or they feel pride. And maybe that's the heart region. Maybe that's their head because they can think it, but they can't feel it yet. Yeah. And so for clients who are also, and I know you've talked a lot about this in your work, but like highly intellectual you know, I, I joke about this because my, my seven-year-old, she was, she's so intellectual. Mm. One time she was very stressed out. I don't think I've completely traumatized her yet. So I don't think it's that, but like she was (laughs) really stressed out and I could see her body reacting. And so I said, you know, Hey babe, like, where do you feel that in your body? And she was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I said, you know, like, I can see that your body is really stressed right now. I sense. And she was like, well, I guess if I'm feeling it somewhere, it would be my head because that's where my thoughts are. Like, <laughs> so obvious. Like, if you're come on, mom, <laughs> right? So for clients, sometimes if you can get them to that place where they're, I, they're, you allow them to make some meaning. They can move out of their head and they can get into their body, or they can at least have compassion for the fact that okay, I do feel it in my head. Like it's racing thoughts. And I, I, that is a sensation. It comes with a sensation. And so even giving permission and acceptance for that to be part of the tracking experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you mentioned the, you know, where do you feel it in your body? Because, you know, we always see people joking about that on TikTok and stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think to a lot of people, that's like all they know about somatic therapy is it's just a therapist asking you, and where do you feel that in your body? Like (laughs) over and over and over again. And I I think that maybe, you know, some therapists kind of like you were saying, they, they read a little bit about the somatic stuff. And so they try to use that question, but without having like the full context of the resourcing Mm -hmm. and the preparation 
separation and everything. And I can mm-hmm. reflect back on when I was younger, when I, when I was maybe like 19, 20, seeing a therapist who would try to get me to be in my body and it would make me so uncomfortable. I would yeah. be like, you know, I, I think, oh my gosh, I had this one therapist that wanted me to do dance, like dance and movement. And mm-hmm. at that point I was so uncomfortable in my body. So up in my head, you know, so mm-hmm. dissociated. I remember laughing in her face. I was like, you want me to do what? Like, <laughs> like I'm going to stand up and dance like a girl, nope. you know, there's no way. So I know, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like unthinkable. Right. And so I had to start really small. Like there was not going to be any getting up and dancing. There wasn't even going to be like a, where do you feel that in your body? Because when I would be asked that question sometimes, and I, I, I'm going to say this because I know I'm not alone in this. Sometimes I would make up an answer to try to make my therapist happy without actually knowing what the fuck that question meant. (laughs) I'd be like, Oh, I don't know my stomach or whatever. And so I think a lot of clients that are really intellectualizing or dissociative need a lot more like guidance and support to even get to the point where they can answer that question. Absolutely. And you know what I have found to be two ways to help those, that type of client in particular, um, because I was that client also was um, (laughs) smell and sound. So, um, so sometimes, you know, in my office, I have like different sprays or I have essential oils because it goes to, it it bypasses um, a part of your brain where that's regulated. And so you experience it for all sensory input, um, smell is received differently in the brain. And so it holds more connection with those memories. Like that's why you'll have a client be like, um, like a client with medical trauma. And they're like, I can't go to the doctors because the smell of the doctor's office brings back when I was hospitalized. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, bringing in new associations with smell and that way we don't need to talk. We don't need to talk about it, but it's still somatic. (laughs) And then the other piece with the sound, this is an interesting one. So, um, sometimes with clients, what I'll do is allow them to like the floor is such an interesting place. And like this, some people will love this and some people will hate it. But a lot of times my clients, particular clients with CPTSD, like they want to get as close to the ground as possible. And if there's any neurodivergency, I've also noticed my clients like prefer the ground. Like, so (laughs) they want to feel that sense of stability and security and um, they may not be able to explain it or describe it, but they just want to feel it. So allowing that to happen is important. So again, there's that proprioceptive piece, but then with sound. So asking a client, like, um, you've just been talking about feeling like you, you know, you're not worthy of that raise. You feel like you're insignificant in the relationship that you're in. Like you don't bring as much to the table, um, and you're, you're feeling like if you don't continue to do this role that you've always played in your family of origin, that, you know, you'll lose all sense of worth because these other areas you don't feel like you're standing out in. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering from this, this place on the ground, like what that looks like um, and sounds like, and they'll be like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so like, um, what do you observe about your posture right now? And they might say like, okay, my shoulders are slumped. I'm kind of, my back is, my spine is arched. I'm in a protected, they're hunched over. Okay. If you, if I'm going to leave the room, even if that's helpful, but just quietly to yourself, let the air leave your body and just notice if there's a sound. And so at first this may not happen. A client may be too like, Oh no, this is weird, but, Mm -hmm. but hopefully you've built enough rapport and trust and experiencing for this to happen. And then you come back in the room and they're like, you know, so what what did you notice? And they're like, 
yeah, I, I got to a place after a couple breaths where I was able to be like, huh. okay, well, I, I'm wondering if you imagine yourself um, being free of the role you have with your family of origin, imagining that you could still have um, connection, you could still have security, um, and you could still feel like yourself. Oh, oh, wait, I just noticed that you're, you sat up a little. Can you share with me what's going on? I like the way that sounds, but I don't know if I'll ever get that. Okay. If you could pair a sound with that, what would that be? And so I've had clients who don't want me to leave the room and I've been privileged and honored to be in the moment where they're like, ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or there there's more. And then you might ask them, is there an animal that goes with that? Right. And so they're able to kind of create these visuals for their, the place they are and the place they want to be opposed to having to keep talking about it, which they're really good at right. and not get a sense of change or shift. Right. I love that. I, you know, so I use scent a lot as well. I've also found that scent is like a really great kind of introductory, like sensory intervention. I haven't heard of the sound thing though. So I, I love that idea. Um, and it's a nice way to again, to kind of like embody and express some of those things that maybe we don't have words for, you know, cause it's yeah. just this like primal kind of instinct of feeling and sensation. So. And I you can take that. it smaller too, because you could like ask a client, like if they're not ready for that, you could say like, can you bring in a song for me mm. and play it? Like, can we play it next session mm-hmm. that represents both of those postures yeah. for you? Right. Yeah. Cause I know like music is so in and of itself a er, uh, corrective experience at times. Oh, yeah. Affirming experience, right? Mm-hmm, so totally. it's, I'm not negating that that in and of itself is somatic. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah. So one, one question I want to ask here is, um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. So the, the subject of I'm, I'm putting quotation marks here resistance, um, mm-hmm. because, <laughs> you know, I was just talking to someone the other day about, you know, basically hearing like a supervisor or, or some kind of authority figure kind of label these different clients as, as resistant. And this is something that I hear about a lot of, oh, they're not doing their homework outside of therapy. That's resistance. You know, they're not responding to the coping tools you're giving them. Maybe they're resistant. Um, and you know, I think especially with the, these kinds of like somatic, and bottom-up modalities, our view of like quote unquote resistance is pretty different. Um, yeah. and I just kind of want to highlight that. So, you know, if, yeah. if you're trying to do this stuff with a client and you're <sighs> getting a lot of like reluctance or pushback or hesitancy, or like, I can't do that. I don't want to try that. How do you frame that? And, and what's the difference between like the kind of standard yeah. look at resistance and, and how you approach it? Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to, again, do that kind of like cognitive interweave here between somatic experiencing and somatic attachment EMDR. So yeah. one of the things in my training for somatic attachment, safe EMDR is we spent such a huge chunk of time as therapists practicing and learning how to, um, regulate ourselves mm. so that our own junk is not projected onto the client's process in that moment. Um, it was literally like my MDR training was literally like an exorcism, I think in the most <laughs> wonderful way. Um, I just remember going home after each session and looking at my husband and him being like glass of wine. I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go alone for a minute. Um, because it was just such good self-confrontation mm. of learning to regulate that. And so the reason I bring that up is because I, I, we talked about a lot about this concept of resistance and recognizing that that sometimes is 
our own shit. Like we are using that word because we feel incapable because we are sensing we're not doing enough. What is it bringing up? So in a somatic attachment EMDR, we talk about, um, it's unique to other EMDRs because we talk about the answer and I'll explain that more later. But when I am having those reflexive thoughts of, oh, this client's being so resistant because I'm human. Um, I need to check for myself what of my own answer is coming up. Am I trying, am I the hero right now? Am I the doer? And am I trying to make sure that I help fix this person? Come on. So um, why is that coming up in me? And why am I wanting to go to this kind of um, medicalized, clinical, pathologized term to help me cope with the experience of um, what the client is working through until they feel safe enough? Right. And that's the second part. So a client um, resistance is beautiful. Thank God for it. I can think, um, and I have literally thanked my clients. Thank you for not doing your homework. Mm -hmm. Clearly you decided that that was not an exercise or activity that you wanted to put the energy into or, or felt safe enough to do. Good job for knowing that. Thank you for feeling safe enough even to tell me. Thank you for not having to feel like you need to tell me you did it when you didn't Mm -hmm. because this is transparency. And in the transparency, co-regulation happens. And co-regulation is more powerful and transformative than having a client check all the boxes of what their treatment plan says. Right, right. (laughs) Resistance is functional. I don't even like that word. I just think, I just use safe enough. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the word either, you know, and- the, the way that I kind of view it, if a client doesn't feel ready, you know, to get out of a certain state or to try a new exercise or whatever, I find that to be like such um, valuable information for our relationship and for, you know, for the therapy space. It's, you know, sometimes like a common example I see is a client that comes in who their kind of baseline nervous system state is a pretty dissociative, like freeze type of state. Yeah. And so they, they don't really want to be in their body. They don't really want to be in their yeah. emotions. And if you try to push a client past that, you know, or you, or you kind of encourage a client to push past their own, you know, body's boundaries that can be really destabilizing. It can be really harmful. Whereas if we lean into that and we're like, yeah, let's explore, you know, why it feels really important to kind of stay in this state right now, or why it feels really risky, you know, to feel this emotion or to feel your body. Not only are we going to build, you know, better therapeutic rapport that way, but we're actually going to like, really meet the client where they are and, and do some really like valuable exploration of their experience there. So I hate, I feel like labeling things as resistant just shuts down like any avenue for anything helpful to happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it's information. It's important information for us that says, okay, we're, we're not there yet. The readiness, like you said, the readiness is not there. And, And we should never, ever project onto our clients a sense of like, we don't want to re-traumatize them, right? Like a sense of shame or like you should be there by now. Like that's all our own staff. And we have to be able to have our own supports and regulation with that so that they can have the freedom to get to readiness and to take risks. And I tell my clients this all the time. Like I do a lot of work with couples with recovering from purity culture. And so we Mm. do a lot of 
um, informed sex therapy and getting them to a place of where they feel safe enough to take risks and how taking risks is powerful and healthy and good and how in religious culture it got deemed bad and backsliding and falling into the world. And, um, you know, and so like rediscovering with curiosity, what taking risks looks like, and that's going to take time. And that's on your client's clock on yours as a therapist. Yes. Yeah. I love that you brought up kind of like the therapist, us as the therapist needing to be aware of our own like ego or expectations or projections there, because I think it totally can come from like a place of insecurity or of, you know, well, I want to see this client get to this certain point. So I can feel like I'm doing a good job, you know, as the therapist. And then it's easier to kind of label the client as resistant than to sit with the discomfort, you know, that comes up kind of within us sometimes when we Absolutely. have to slow down and we have to meet the client where they are and and we have to be you know really like honoring of everyone's kind of individual clock and and what that process looks like so I wish they would teach that in grad school. <laughs> Seriously and they can feel so much shame for it that they'll end up fawning right they put themselves yeah. right back. So yeah you have to really normalize that yeah. process for them. Yeah. So I would love to, with, with some of the time that we have left, talk a little bit more about religious trauma. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, I guess, um, to start off, what do you commonly see with CPTSD from religious trauma? Cause I, I think it can be one of those things that's maybe a little bit harder for people to identify when there's not like one specific abuser or incident. I mean, in general with CPTSD, it can be harder to identify because there's not one acute incident. And instead it's like this compounding, you know, recurring state of being mm-hmm. traumatized. I feel like with religion, you know, there's even all these other added layers of, of complexity when you're like traumatized by an ideology and a group and, you know, like a a culture. So yeah, just share a little more about what you, what you noticed there. Yeah, definitely. So I think the biggest thing is that it's so easily aligns with the conceptualization of CPTSD. And I, I don't, I don't want to say I haven't seen a client who strictly has religious trauma (laughs) um, aside from CPSD because they, but I I mean, I have, but it's so often coincides, right? Because (laughs) they are vulnerable and um, there's oftentimes multiple types of spiritual abuse that Mm -hmm. happens. And so when we think about CPTSD as multiple dynamic, consistent forms of um, trauma and abuse, you get that just within religion alone, Uh, Yeah, in particular in the evangelical faith. And so sometimes we're working with the CPTSD of religious trauma. Yeah. (laughs) Then you're also working with CPTSD that the client has. So as the practitioner, you're wanting to help the client see that your religious trauma is not event-based. It's Mm -hmm. not this singular element. It is so much more tethered and engrossed than just this one part of you, one traumatic thing that happened to you. And I think a lot of times that in and of itself is revolutionary for clients when they come in, because Mm. they will think, you know, like I, 
I just need to work on this religious trauma and uh, that's something I need to work on. But I also have like all this other childhood developmental attachment stuff I'd like to work on. And then they start to see these interweaves of how those two play. And then they start to see how just within the religious trauma, there's these multiple consistent chronic dynamic abuses that occurred. Yes. And so you're having to pull at those strings um, no, that's not the language I want to use. You're having to help them navigate opening and peeling that onion. Yeah, on yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. to, to help them feel safe enough to go through those layers. And so a lot of times clients will come in and they they didn't even realize how complex their religious trauma was. Yeah. And once they get that insight, it can be very validating for them as to why it's so debilitating. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that um, I've noticed is that there's usually a really strong attachment trauma component, because I mean, first of all, I think a lot of attachment can be really, you know, injured and and dysfunctional kind of within the context of evangelical communities. But then also, if someone decides to leave, if someone decides to like deconstruct, um, then they're often dealing with like the loss of family and community and like everyone that they have ever known. And, you know, we were talking about the importance of community earlier. So I feel like that's such a big part of it too. It's like, not only was I traumatized by all of this messaging around purity culture and, you know, original sin and shame around my body and all these different things, but now I'm also grieving the loss of my relationships with my family. 100%. And, And can I be, am I safe enough to start to build new relationships. Mm-hmm. And what does that even look like? And a lot of clients don't feel ready right away because they're still having to um, break down the concepts and that consumes so much energy to just figure out what they even believe now. Um, and then, like I mentioned before, that longing kicks in. And so they're do it, they're experiencing isolation, they're experiencing grief, they're experiencing chronic shame, they're experiencing disembodiment, they're experiencing um, disconnection from their intuitive wisdom mm-hmm. and curiosity was shamed. And so they're having to reestablish all these primitive attributes of being human for themselves. And as in therapy, you become the safe place. You try to foster the safe place for that to happen. And then if you're doing your job, well, you're trying to point them in directions where they can connect with, whether it's online communities, support groups, or other educational experiences. You know, a lot of times clients aren't ready to connect with anything spiritual again in any way, shape or form. And so we start to look at like, is there a class you'd like to take? Is there a volunteer opportunity that you'd like to do so that they can have uh, a recorrective experience in the community um, that Mm. serves as care and nurturing and self-expression because that has been hindered and um, warped for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I, I was also just remembering another thing that I have seen um, people that are that are deconstructing and religious trauma specialists discuss online that I would love your take on, which is it's basically this idea that dysregulated nervous systems respond to fundamentalism and are like soothed by fundamentalism and and what that looks like in terms of it being like dysregulating to let go of that fundamentalism so let me hear your take on that let's talk about that yeah okay (laughs) so um I'm gonna 
I think, ooh, how do I want to say this? Okay. So I think human nature in general, um, we have this intuitive yanking within us to connect. Yeah. And I think we do this primitively neurobiologically for survival, right? Um, but then you get a world that is so demanding and production-based, performative-based that we would really like to make that simple. Like, how can I guarantee that I will safely connect and um, come out on the other side? Okay, can somebody give me a formula? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, when you have experienced abuse already, whether that is um, physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual, you are more vulnerable to the confusion that comes with wanting to seek out that formula and who to trust. And you can look for something that clearly spells it out for you. And fundamentalism, they will surely hand that to you on a silver They'll do that. Yeah. (laughs) They'll do that for you. And so what it does is it kind of gives us these bumpers in in the bowling alley that make us these illusional bumpers that make us feel like, okay, if I just do these things, then I'm a good person. I'll go to heaven. I'll be okay. And these bad things will never happen to me again because thank God for prosperity gospel, which is crap. And so it becomes this sense of security and safety. And as much as you can hear in my tone, my frustration with it, I, what I hope to emulate with my clients is a deep abiding understanding for why that worked for them for a season of their life and how at some point they intuitively recognize that it was not working or serving them well anymore. And that is exactly what trauma healing is. Your adaptive mechanism is no longer working for you anymore. It once was the answer to the problem that you Mm -hmm. found yourself stuck in that you did not ask for or deserve, but it no longer as an adult or wherever you are in your life is functioning in a way that serves you the same results. It is now burdening you. And so look how you released yourself from that burden and what bravery that took. And so, yes, I do think that. Um, and I think that, that it's like praying on, it, it's essentially praying on the vulnerable and yeah. it, it in itself, fundamentalism and evangelicalism in particular operates on the basis of shame because yeah if it didn't, you would, they would not have customers. And I'm I'm saying this as someone who believes that they have have my own practice of connection with the divine. And even, I I mean, I, I move back and forth through the term Christianity, depending on my day, but (laughs) I I say this even still with my own ability to hold on to concepts Mm -hmm. um, that are meaningful to me and are relational to me. Um, And so I can say that this is frustrating and this is wrong, but that on the other side of it, there's a way to still make sense of your world and take what is good and holy and meaningful and helpful and let the rest go. But that process is one of strengthening intuitive wisdom, one of embodiment, one of um, knowledge and education and relearning. And and it's hard and it's scary, but when you get to walk alongside a client who's doing it, um, you just, it's such an honor. And so religious trauma in and of itself is so complex. And then you've got to do all the other work with your client of the other elements of their lives because it connects to their family, right? So they had a spiritual leader in the church. Then they have a spiritual leader in their home. Then they have maybe sometimes a spiritual leader in their school. If they went to a private school, 
And now this happens not just in Christianity. This happens. I've worked with clients of Jewish Orthodox faith. Mm -hmm. I've worked with clients from the Muslim faith and watching them even deconstruct and move through. Um, And so that is, that part is true no matter the faith element. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's kind of like this, um, the self-trust element too, because I feel like one thing that all of these kind of fundamentalist and high control religious groups have in common is they really erode a person's trust in themselves and trust in their own kind of sense of like values and just like what they believe in and what feels right or wrong to them. It overrides that. And then, I mean, complex trauma already, you know, really often damages self-trust. And so I find that that is such a huge element too, in in terms of any kind of healing from complex trauma. And I think sometimes, you know, I've noticed that clients who are used to being given that like simple formula for success might even come to therapy wanting the same thing, right? It might kind of be like, I don't, I don't want to trust myself. I want to put my trust in a therapist. The therapist is going to be my new, you know, authority figure to kind of look up to. And I want, you know, almost seeking out that really like simple formula. And so it can be really like uncomfortable, but also so healing to be like, that's not what this healing space looks like. It's not me being the authority and giving you the simple instructions for healing. Like this happens within you and your resources and your trust in yourself. Well, and and you mentioned attachment with religious trauma and, and just to comment on that briefly is the other, the other side of that is oftentimes those with religious trauma they start to feel shame in the therapeutic relationship when they realize they're attached to their therapist Mm. because they're like, Oh, I'm supposed to do this on my own. I can't trust anyone ever again, but here's this person. And so how do I know that you're not just helping me because you're paid to help me, but that you really care about me or that like all of those things get questioned in that moment. And if you're not with someone who is trained to, and has done the good work to study religious trauma, I think clients often get misdiagnosed at that point in the healing process. Oh, They'll yeah. say, oh, oh, wow. Maybe I never realized that this person has some borderline symptoms or this person has disorganized attachment. And what you're really looking at is someone who's recovering from a cult, who's recovering yeah. from <laughs> not knowing if they, if, if the attachment is genuine and supposed to be there and healthy. And so it is the therapist's responsibility in that moment to do that corrective relational work where you are reminding them, you know, and you're not crossing boundaries and you're not letting your own stuff get in the way, but you're uh, reminding them that, no, I, I am attached to you. This yeah. is healthy. This is human interaction. I do actually care about you. Your process does matter to me. Do I think about you outside of therapy? Yes, I do. You're a human. You mm-hmm. exist in my world. And humanizing that experience um, so that you're not some authority figure, but you're also not bad for them caring about you and yeah. you caring about them. And that yeah. that has to be done skillfully yep. and that has to be done um respectfully to the client's boundaries and the therapist's boundaries, but it has to be done because it's part of the healing work. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And this is another one of those commonalities that all the bottom-up experiential modalities seem to have in common. Every therapist that I've interviewed about these things says the same thing. We have to actually, you know, not fall into kind of this old school blank slate, you know, authority figure dynamic with the clients that's re-traumatizing when you have attachment trauma, you know, it can also be re-traumatizing to be clear, to have a relationship without the proper boundaries around it. So it's this very fine line, you know, that we need to navigate, which is to, to, you know, model like a healthy and a safe 
attachment, secure attachment experience that also is like boundaried and clear. And so it's a, it's a very unique kind of relationship that we need to foster. Yeah. And I would say a key there is, is creating a relationship where you can continually welcome feedback from your client. Yeah. Like, was this helpful? Is it helpful? When you left here, did any part of that feel ick? Did you, and you're not putting it on them to manage it. Right. You just want to create an opportunity for them to give feedback because you're trying to assess where their baseline is for a healthy attachment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is really helpful for trying to make sure we don't create like a, a power authority dynamic as well, which is like, I don't want you to be re-experiencing here the dynamics of religious trauma where you just have to accept everything these authority figures say, and don't you dare question it. Like your voice is welcomed here. I want to know if you're like that exercise felt weird or like, I don't think I liked that. Or you said this thing and that, that didn't really make sense or that didn't feel quite right. Or so that's Mm -hmm. so important. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, definitely. And reestablishing that intuitive wisdom. That's a huge one for the religious trauma piece. And so that it can come in that getting feedback place where you're trusting them to trust themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been so great. I guess before we wrap up, I like to end with just a more open-ended question. So, um, out of kind of everything that, that we've been discussing here, is there anything else that you just feel really passionate about that you want to talk about or that you would want the the listeners of my podcast, you know, pretty much all people with complex trauma to to know? Yeah, so I I think when when we talk about somatic attachment based EMDR, one of the things I would just mention to make sure if you have CPTSD is that your process includes um, creating preparatory space before going into the actual reprocessing where you and your therapist are spending time um, resourcing somatic exercises, but also discovering how um, your protective mechanisms were an answer to the problem of needing to stay safe and connected and how they made meaning for you um, and doing that with appreciation so that when they come up in the EMDR process, um, it's not something that you're um, feeling dysregulated about or feeling like you're regressing, but that it comes up and you and your therapist have created a relationship and an understanding of those answers and solutions, whether it be, you know, intellectualizing or it be, uh, being perfectionist in a way that they're honored in your EMDR, um, opposed to getting, they shouldn't be viewed as a block. They should be viewed as something that has a strength. And then if it's so strong, you might have other areas that are underdeveloped. And so spending time developing those areas to nurture your younger self, to nurture the you that is now doing the therapy process. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I was just, um, connecting this to in the, the kind of blurb that you sent me about somatic based EMDR, you said, um, we reconsider blocks as overdeveloped skills so that we can safely work within the client's patterns rather than against them. So is that kind of what you're referring to here? Like these are, these are skills they may have, you know, we may have needed to like over rely on them or kind of overdevelop them in the context of trauma. 
Yeah, exactly. And so that if they're skills, then they're going to be useful. They're going to be yeah. useful when to let us know when we're going off the rails with, with flooding of memories. And they're going to be useful to letting us know when you need to put a stop signal up and you're done reprocessing for the day. They're going to yeah. be useful in multiple ways. And um, they should, you know, you don't ever want to, just like an IFS, you don't want to take the job away. Right. <laughs> So um, just that compassion and that usefulness. And so making sure that that's for, for CPTSD, I feel like that's such an important part of the recovery because we can feel like there's such an accumulative amount of hurt or pain to work through. And you often think you're going into it with no skills. And yeah. when you do an attachment-based perspective, you recognize that those patterns are your skill set and they're going to help you. Now we're going to notice the ones that are underdeveloped because you had to give so much energy to those skills. These other ones. Yeah. 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 But they're there and you have them and you were designed to heal. So you actually have a lot within you to heal. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Okay. Last question. Cause I know people always want to know how could people find you? If they want to, they can go to my website, which is adelmartel.com and they can get a hold of me that way. There's my email is probably the best way to reach out. I see clients in Virginia only at this Virginia. time. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And I am including the link to your website and also your TikTok um, in the description of the podcast for anyone that wants to check out your work. So Thank you so much. I enjoyed this so much. I feel like I learn so much every time I get to do one of these interviews and I just really appreciate you lending your time and your expertise. Thank you. I really appreciate it as well. Thank you so much.